We are in Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. I am going to be reading from the English Standard Version tonight. And I want to set this up for you. This is what's kind of been taking place. Malachi is essentially writing this story sometime around 460 B.C. His name literally means my messenger. And so he begins writing this story about 460, as I said. And one thing you should know is that at this time, the Persians are in control. About 80 years earlier, the people came out of Babylonian captivity. And that was mainly due to regime change. In 539 B.C., the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, and it was one year later that the people of Judah were allowed to return back to their home country and begin the rebuilding process. And so that happened about 80 years prior to Malachi writing this in 460 B.C. And he starts writing this, and it's looking really good. He says in chapter 1, he says, I love you. Church, God loves you. That is good news for some of us. However, after the declaration of love for his people, most of this letter deals with sin. Most of this letter deals with indictment and Malachi correcting the people in the different problems that they have going on. And what has ultimately led to the point where we're at today in verse 5 of chapter 3 is back in chapter 217, um, the people are essentially talking crap. Sorry for the paid TV language, but that's exactly what's happening. They are talking garbage. They're, they're angry. In chapter 217, the people are angry. They're frustrated. They feel like things should be going better for them. After all, it's been 80 years since their ancestors returned from Babylon. The temple's re been rebuilt. God, I want good to happen now. Where are the restored blessings? We, th we think things should be going better. And they're not. They feel like they deserve to be treated better than they actually are. And oh, by the way, it seems to them that everywhere they look, people are getting away with things. And so they start saying, where is the God of justice? And he delights in those who do evil. Well, that's crazy. But see, when you get really angry and you get really mad sometimes, you start saying things that aren't actually true. And that's exactly what's happening. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi says, He is coming. The Lord is coming. And then in verse 2, the Lord is described as this refiner's fire and this fuller's soap. He is this dual purpose of both purification and judgment. Then in chapter 3, verse 3, we see this divine artist refining and purifying his people in order to bring about the intended result at the end of verse 3, end of verse 4, ultimately, that they will bring offerings and righteousness to God. And then that sets us up for verse 5. That's where we're at right now. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against you. Now he's going to, the you is implied, but it's going to be a, a lot of different sin issues we're going to talk about. So I'm going to draw near to you for judgment, and then I will be a swift witness against you. Verse 5 indicates that after purifying the sons of Levi, the Lord is going to exercise judgment against the people's wickedness. After purifying the sons of Levi, he's going to exercise judgment against the people's wickedness. Now, what's going on here? You, if you go back to verse 3, it says, 
he will sit. Verse 3 is, remember the picture of him being the divine artist? It says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. See, essentially what's been happening contextually and kind of the overarching theme of this story is this, that religious activity is never a substitute for authentic worship. In the context, in the reference to Levi, the the tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe. So what's been happening is this. People are coming and they're bringing offerings to God. They're bringing gifts to God. And just like if you were going to someone's house that you respected, whether it was the mayor, whether it was the governor, whether it was the president, someone that you respect, if you were going to bring a gift, you'd probably bring a good gift, a legitimate gift. The people aren't doing that. They're bringing garbage to God. And the priests really don't care enough to even correct the people. So here they come with their little lamb. And instead of saying, um, what's going on there? The, that little lamb is missing a leg. Or is that, is that even alive? Yes, it's sleeping right now. Um, okay, sure, why not? Go ahead, bring that offering to God. That's exactly what's happening. See, the priests, they don't really care. They're like, yeah, whatever, check the box, right? You know, I went to prayer groups, boom, uh, you went to convo, boom, okay, we're gone. Uh, you know, I read my Bible enough today. I did enough. I, I, I checked the box. And so this is an ongoing theme in this story. And that is the reference to Levi. That's what's happening. Instead of saying, no, you can't bring that to God. God deserves your best. Not your second best, not your third best. God deserves your best. Church, God will not be number two in any way in your life. He wants to be number one. And some of you, your priorities are all messed up. You say he's number one, but it's like, okay, he's number one, but I ran out of time today, so I'm going to just move him down to six, and I'll slide this up here so because I, I got that intramural soccer game tonight. So, okay, now I'll readjust that because, okay, that works there. Um, he will not play second to anyone or anything. And so here in verse 5, he says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. So you understand some of the things that have been happening so far. This religiosity that's substituted for genuine worship. And then I will be a swift witness against you. Now it's interesting, when he says, I will draw near to you for judgment... This is really interesting. That word judgment there is the exact same word in the original language that you find in 2.17. At the end of 2.17, it says, where is the God of justice? I don't know if you see that. 2.17, where is the God of justice? That word justice is the exact same word in the original language where it says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. Remember back in 2.17, the people are talking crap, saying, God, we're upset. We deserve to be treated right. We deserve to be treated better than this. And caveat, nuance. If God really treated us exactly how we deserve, we'd all go to hell. And so, here they are, back in 2.17, whining, complaining, saying, oh, they're getting away with that. Come on, God, where's the God of justice? Look at this, look at this, look at this. And they're not actually even examining their own selves. And so now here, in verse 5, the interesting thing is, the people are reminded that the justice that they sought back in 2.17 is the very thing that God is going to bring. He will draw near to them for judgment. He will be a swift witness against them. A swift witness. A witness is someone who comes and testifies to the truth. He will not just be a witness, but he will also be a vindicator of those who've been wronged. 
He will be a vindicator of those who have been wronged, and he will judge those who've done the wrongdoing. There's an element of hope here. You say, this is kind of a dark and gloomy text today. Yeah, it is, a little bit. I kind of like it. But there's also an element of hope here. There's a certain amount of hope in knowing that no one gets away with anything. To the people back in 217, remember, they're saying, where is the God of justice? Where is he? Where are you? Now, they've got their own problem going on because they've got some major sin issues in their own life that they are clearly overlooking and looking at everyone else's flaws. But to the people in 217, it seemed that those people in and around them had immunity. They couldn't be voted off. Let me be really clear when it comes to immunity. Immunity may be a thing in Survivor, It's not a thing with God. Immunity may be a thing with or in Survivor. It's not a thing with and in God. Not even for Christians. Like Christians, you didn't get immunity. You got the cross. That's what you got. You were bought by the king of the universe. And it came at a very high price. God is a God of justice. And oh, by the way... The justice here is being applied to his own people. Not even them are catching a break here. He is a God of justice because he is a righteous God. He is a holy God. And oh, by the way, also some good news, he never gets a judgment wrong. Like he never says, Gabriel, Michael, so I'm reviewing uh, Joe Decreon's case, and yeah, um, apparently he was the one that did that after all. Like that never happens. He has a perfect record. And yes, Judgment is coming. Yes, he's going to be a swift witness. But I think the hope from that is knowing that no one ever gets away with anything. Not even you. And that's good. Because if you're like me, you mess up a lot. When the time comes for God to judge, Malachi says that he will do so quickly without hesitation. It is going to Suck to suck for a lot of people. And that should motivate you. That should motivate some of you to repent of things right now that I haven't even mentioned, but that you know you shouldn't be doing. That should motivate you to place your faith in Jesus as your Savior and submit and to bow to His Lordship over your life. And Oh, by the way, if He's Lord of your life, you cannot tell Him no. You can't. If that doesn't motivate some of you guys to witness, to your friends, to evangelize, to invite them to church, I don't know what will. Like, if it doesn't motivate you, what Malachi says here in verse 2 of chapter 3, but who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? The answer is nobody can stand when He appears. Nobody can endure that day. That should motivate you, Christians. When you're in the line at Walmart and, and you're talking to the cashier, you know, there's no one around you. You've got plenty of time. And having that intentionality in your conversation with them or the people on your dorm, or the people in your classes. You say, man, I live in Lynchburg. I mean, this isn't exactly like, you know, a mission field. 
According to Barner Research, 2015, March, Lynchburg hit 79 on the list of 100 top unchurched cities in America. It's a fact. You can check it. I don't care. Uh, Lynchburg, Roanoke, 79 on the list of top 100 unchurched cities in America, with almost one out of every three people in this city unchurched. You can see their criteria, but that's not good. Some, for those of you who say, well, everybody I know is a Christian. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people say that they're Christians, but they give very little evidence that they are. They say, oh, I've got a personal relationship with Jesus. And usually I come back with, okay, well, so did Judas. So did Satan. Satan had a personal relationship with Jesus. So is there a difference in your life? Oh, yeah, that should be the feeling that you have, if not for yourself and for some of the people that you know. You know them, right? I always love to point out, I love the story of the, the, ancient, the early Puritans who came to America. They never did altar calls. Didn't I tell you this the other day? Yeah, they never did altar calls. I'm looking at Henry and putting him on the spot. The early Puritans came to America. They never did altar calls. Now, I don't care if you want to do an altar call or, or whatever. Um, it's whatever. But um, people said, well, if they didn't do an altar call, how would you know who got saved? If they didn't raise their hand, if they didn't pray the prayer, if they didn't fill out a little comment card, how would you know? Like, that's a serious problem. Well, it was easy. The Puritans would say, it was easy, you know, who got saved because their lives changed and they kept coming back to church. Like, you can't meet Jesus in a saving way and nothing in your life change. It's impossible because Jesus, he changes everything. That should motivate you knowing that he will draw near for judgment, that he will be a swift witness, that not even his own people will escape from this. Like, that should motivate some of you right now to, to just, right now, start praying, start repenting for things. And that should motivate you for those people. Like, you are thinking of that person right now. You're thinking, that person on my hall who professes to be a Christian, or that I have in that class, and I know they're not, and I need to be intentional with them. Yeah, you do. Be intentional, because you know what Malachi says in 3, 2. No one can endure the day of his coming. No one can stand before him. And so he begins to give us this list of all the egregious and awful things that have been happening. And the first thing is this. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. Some of you are like, okay, well this clearly doesn't apply to me. I don't even watch Lord of the Rings. (laughs) That guy over there, he's a huge Harry Potter fan, so you keep preaching to him, Pastor, so... When it comes to sorcery, that is a strange thing, right? It's going to be, okay, we don't really, it's like, oh, you might as well just skip that. Let me just be clear. When it comes to things like sorcery, witchcraft, ultimately what sorcery and witchcraft is all about is control. It's manipulation. Sorcery is ultimately about the attempt to control things in both the physical and the spiritual world through things like magical incantations, charms, rituals, It's encountered about a dozen times in the Bible. The first time we see it is the Egyptians who practice magic back in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11. And in ancient Israel, it took it really serious. Like, if you were caught doing sorcery or witchcraft, they just killed you. Which, uh, and that's Exodus 22, 18. In fact, sorcery was actually lumped in, according to Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 11, with those who sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. Um, those who practiced divination, those who gave oracles 
interpreted omens, cast spells, or mediums, spiritists, or those who consulted with the dead. So, um, probably an understatement, but God, he's not a big fan of people that do sorcery and witchcraft. He's just not. And ultimately, as I said, it's ultimately about attempt to control and manipulate things. And it is anti-gospel. It is anti-faith. You've heard me say this before. Like, the gospel is not that you somehow fix or make things right. Like, the gospel is this. You suck. You can't do anything to fix the suck. And God comes in and he cleans you and makes you new. And he fixes you and refines you and purifies you and cleans you up. Like, that's the gospel. Like, biblical faith is unique in that it's free from human manipulation and control. So he doesn't like sorcery. And as I said, the application, ultimately it's about trying to manipulate and control things. I knew a guy one time, this is a true story, and he was so controlling in his relationship with this girl, he was like, I want you to give me all your passwords to your Verizon online account, to your Facebook account, to your email, because he wanted to see who she was texting, who she was talking to, who she was writing, and it was just, just bizarre and dysfunctional. I got it. You might not practice sorcery or witchcraft. Maybe you do. Um, but ultimately, that's not the gospel. That type of control and constant manipulation, so I say, not healthy. And so here's the second thing he talks about. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers. One of 16 capital crimes in Israel is adultery. And I'll give you this, because this is a little historical note, and I like history, so there's actually some controversy surrounding adultery. Um, In fact, the view of which may be the majority of Old Testament scholars in the Old Testament is, in ancient Israel, is that adultery was defined as sexual intercourse between a married or betrothed woman and any man other than her husband. Now, if you caught that, then you're like, well, that's, that's unfair, that's not right. So they would say, and this is actually a majority of opinion held by many scholars, is that if a married lady or an engaged girl gets with a guy, adultery. But if a married guy or an engaged guy gets with just a single lady, not adultery. And much of this is an argument from silence. It's based on, and those are usually the weakest arguments, because the argument and the assumption is that Israelite marriage law and customs that they would have followed that of the surrounding pagan areas. And the surrounding nations, they all forbid adultery because ultimately adultery infringed upon a husband's right and property. So that was a little historical excursus, but this is what I see, especially in light of the New Testament, especially Hebrews chapter 13, 4. It says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. You guys tracking? Anybody tracking? Cool. So let me break this down a little bit. I, I, I find that in society, there's just... We have such a a sex-saturated society that oftentimes leads to some improper ways of thinking about sex, sexuality. And that's oftentimes where the problem originates. And I say that there's probably about three views when it comes to how we view sex. One is 
This group probably views sex as gross, dirty, yucky. This group views sex as a god, and they love it, and they worship it. And this group views sex as an awesome gift from God for both pleasure and for also making babies. So that's good. That's, that's the view we want you to have. But unfortunately, a lot of, some of you may have this view that sex ultimately is gross. And, and there's probably different reasons why that may or may not be. Because I, I, I oftentimes when I experience and encounter people who have this view that sexuality is ultimately gross, oftentimes it's due to past abuses in their own life. Um, people, they've been sexually abused, abused in some way. And so whatever reason, they've, they've come to this conclusion that sex is dirty, it's wrong, and it's, it's not good. And also, people come to that conclusion because they're given demonic advice. In fact, there are some well-known Bible teachers, well-known Bible teachers who just got this area totally wrong. And I, I wanted to read you some of these accounts because this is one of the reasons I think ultimately people have this view that sex is gross. So this is, um, I'm just going to read a page of this. This is uh, Mark Driscoll's Real Marriage book. So um, Tertullian, he's well-known. He was involved in the doctrine of the Trinity. Tertullian and Ambrose were said to prefer extinction of the human race to continued sexual intercourse. Origen was so convinced of the evils of sexual pleasure that he not only allegorized the Song of Songs, but also took a knife and castrated himself. Gregory of Nyssa taught that Adam and Eve were created without sexual desire, and if the fall had not occurred, the race would have reproduced itself by some harmless mode of vegetation. I'm not making this up. Um, Chrysostom said that Adam and Eve could not have had sexual relations before the fall. Jerome threw himself into thorny brambles to overwhelm himself with pain when he began to desire a woman sexually. So, um, guys, I would totally recommend you're having sexual temptation. Before you try this, you should come to LFL. <laughs> Monday nights, fourth floor, Damas. It's kind of extreme, right? It's a true story. Yeah, he'd throw himself onto little sticker bushes. He would also beat his chest with a stone to punish himself for feeling sexually tempted. And he believed that a husband was guilty of adultery if he engaged in unrestrained sexual passion with his wife. Augustine, he's a big deal. He's awesome. But even on this issue, he, he was off. Augustine was sexually active before his conversion and later decided that sex within marriage was not sinful, though the lust and passion associated with it was sinful. Because of this, he often commended married couples for not engaging in sex and referred to it as a form of animalistic lust. St. Francis, oh, this is, this is my favorite, St. Francis, St. Francis made women out of snow and then caressed them in order to quiet the lust that burned in him. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas taught that sex was only permissible for purposes of procreation. Aquinas saw sexual intercourse as duty alone. Anything beyond this was immoral. In fact, the church eventually began to limit the days on which sex was permissible and continued adding days until half the year or more was prohibited. So there you are, right? You're a married guy, and you're like, oh, baby, like, man, let's, let's, you know, let's get together tonight. And she's like, oh, no, it's Wednesday again. And you're like, oh, man. How about tomorrow? No, that's a blackout day, too. Gosh, so frustrating. 
I knew you guys would like this. <laughs> Some people have this view that sex is gross, and there's different reasons. They've been given unbiblical advice um, and saying it's dirty, it's wrong. It could be due to past abuses. I remember you shared with me this one counseling case. Um, the couple had come and saw you, and they'd been married for about three years. And, you know, you're doing your counselor thing, poking around, seeing what's going on, and, and you say, well, when was the last time you guys have been intimate? When was the last time you guys had sex? And he said, oh, we haven't. So said, okay, well, when was the last time? Because I've been married three years. They said, no, we, we haven't. Maybe, maybe you're misunderstanding. When was the last time that you guys were intimate? Because he was like, no, we never have been. And, he, and you said, what, your honeymoon? No, we, we didn't. Um, you, you think that's crazy. And then I met a guy. I, I was doing a counseling session, and he'd been married for four months, and he and his wife had been married for four months, hadn't been intimate with each other. So my point is, is that it may seem like oh, that's, that doesn't happen. That's uncommon. There's a lot of people who do have that view that sex is gross, and as I said, that could come for a lot of different reasons. It could be just unbiblical advice that was given, or it could honestly be past abuses and hurts and pains. And they have this twisted view in their mind, in which case I would say, you know, I'd recommend that you come talk to me or Pastor Dane, and, and you work through that, work through something like that in counseling. Because that's probably, if there's some deep things there, you want to work through that. And I would definitely encourage and recommend counseling. Um, and a lot of people, they struggle with pride on this. They're like, I don't want to go. I think in 2014, I went to 30 sessions on my own just for personal growth and just because it was a tough time in my life. And my point is, is that I say that because I want to encourage you guys, especially if you're Liberty students, you get free counseling. You go see this man all day long, and normally it might cost 150 bucks to see him. Or you, I mean, there's tons of resources. And I, just, I think it's important that we work through some of these issues. If, if that is you, now. Because if you don't, it most likely will manifest itself later on. And of course, the second view is this view that sex is God. And this is big time in our culture, right? This is very Romans 1-esque where they worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. They loved the gift rather than the giver. And that is really true for a lot of people today. In fact, I would say ultimately all sin is a sin of idolatry. All sin is a sin of preferring something other than God. It's looking at that porn. It's recalling those fantasies or those images that you saw on a screen or that you experienced with that person. Or it's doing stuff with that person that you're not married to that you shouldn't be doing. And in that moment, you're saying, I prefer this instead of you. I love this more than you. This is more satisfying than you are. Well, that's, that's not right. And that is very pervasive in our culture, this view that sex is God. I said it earlier, uh, you know, um, and if that's you, you, you might need to work through this in, in counseling. I know if you come see Pastor Dane, if you're a dude at least, he's going to say, come to LFL Monday night. Um, and I think it's so important that we work through these issues, that we come to this healthy view of sex, that it is a gift of God, um, that it is an awesome extracurricular thing to do with your spouse. Um, that it's a great thing, it's a lot of fun. Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. That means if you're not married, you're not doing married things with that person. That means if you're not married, you're not doing everything but sex and saying, okay, that's okay. 
That means that you're honoring that person in that relationship. Ladies, if a guy can't honor you now when he's dating you, if he can't exercise self-control right now when he's dating you, when, oh, by the way, he's supposed to be on his best behavior, that only creates cracks in the foundation of your relationship. You think you can trust him after you're married? When he's at that conference and he's away? This is really important to get this right now. It's so important. And that you're not coming up with foolish justifications like, oh, well, we're married in our hearts. No, you're not. Well, God understands. No, he doesn't. Like, well, we've got this thing. We're going to get married. No, you're not. Like, I had my mom told me about a friend of hers who said that it was okay that she and her boyfriend had sex because she wore this this necklace that had a cross on it. And so, for whatever reason, that made it okay. No, it doesn't. (laughs) She probably... Like, those are just moronic, foolish, dumb things to say. And so, if you're dating someone, you should be on your best behavior. Exercise self-control. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And if you haven't, then repent right now. Have good accountability. Pursue older guys. Pursue older girls. If you're not married, you shouldn't be doing married stuff. And when you get married, grab some Gatorade, shift it into fifth gear, and make up for lost time. This will be on, uh, on SoundCloud uh, next week, so. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing that he's going to talk about right here. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. Those who swear falsely. They're, they're perjuring themselves. They are, they are saying that something's true when it's a lie. And most likely within the context of this, in the next couple of uh, verses or the next couple of words, that they're actually defrauding people. They're taking advantage of people. They're lying to people. And, and possibly that they're actually invoking God's name in doing this. Like, I swear to God, or I invoke the name of God, and I swear to this as being true. If you invoke God's name, you ought to be very, very careful. His name is holy. You need to get that. Because if you don't, that's tantamount to blasphemy. Um, these people are saying that things are true. And they're defrauding people. They're taking advantage of people. Be careful. For those of you who struggle with honesty and integrity, be careful. Don't think God's just going to overlook it because it's, well, this isn't that big of a deal. I'm kind of telling a partial. It's partially true. Be careful. God doesn't like sin. Like worshipers of the Lord, like we are called to pursue the hallowing of His name. May your name be hallowed. May your name be made to look great and awesome and beautiful and glorious and wondrous. But don't invoke my name to something that's not true. That's serious. That's egregious. And the very next thing, it says, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. And quite possibly, this is within the context of people who are lying and defrauding people. How dare you? Dare you mistreat? How dare you take advantage of the hired worker? This implication that this dude that has far less than you have. How dare you take advantage of that woman 
whose husband died. How dare you take advantage of that kid who doesn't have a dad? How dare you take advantage of that guy passing through your town? How dare you treat them this way? And ultimately, this, this comes from greed. This idea of oppressing the hired worker and his wages, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, it comes ultimately from greed. One commentator says this. I thought this was good. He says, one's attitude toward material possessions is a kind of thermometer that measures the health of one's relationship with God and with other people. That's why failure to honor God in the material realm cannot be compensated for by religiosity in the spiritual realm. And this fits so well within the overarching theme of Malachi. The people are trying to just do the motions, check the box, do this religious activity, and somehow God be happy with them bringing this to Him. Like religious activity is no substitute for authentic worship. And so these... Ultimately, you say, well, I don't oppress any of these type of people. Yeah, but look at your heart. You love stuff. You love money. And people come up with these crazy ideas like, well, I'm not going to give any money. I'm not going to be a generous person right now because i got some stuff i got to take care of for the next three months, but then I probably can. But I'm going to make up for it because I'm going to read my Bible extra this, this week. I'm going to you know, make sure I'm at church at least every other Sunday. And people come up with these bizarre things and they think they can substitute religiosity for ultimately... For obedience? For genuine worship? And so we see this economic angle of the story that Malachi introduces. And you might sit here and you think, well, what's the antidote to this, this greed? Because at the heart of this, it's greed. You say, ah, oh, generosity. And I would say, no. Generosity by itself is not an antidote to this. Because if all it is, it's just, like in a second, the band's going to come here and play, and we're going to pass a plate, and You'll have the opportunity to give or to text in the mobile giving and, and give. Um, and you think, all right, well, if, I, if this is something that's on my heart I struggle with, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just do this. I'll just be generous there. But that doesn't glorify God. That glorifies you. That says, look at me. I just fixed it. I just did it. And we have this American mindset, this pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just do it. Just make it happen. Like that's, that's what we think. And that's why I think generosity alone is not the antidote to this because this is a real heart issue. And for whether it's this or some other issue, I would say an insert prayer for you to get to the point and say, God, I'm not a generous person. God, I love things more than you. And I, I don't want to give. Like I want to give, but I don't want to give. And I, I struggle with this, God. I don't want to. And I want to, I want to be a cheerful giver because Paul says in Corinthians, God loves a cheerful giver. That means he doesn't love a begrudging giver. Like when you t- sit there and you put money in the plate, you say, I'm fine. God doesn't love that. He doesn't love begrudging givers. He loves cheerful givers. Like God doesn't need your money. Like the fact that you're going to, in the next two seconds, should make you feel very small. That everything that you have in your wallet, in your checking account, in your lungs is from Him and He could cease it at any moment. To get to that point, you say, God, I struggle with these things. I struggle with greed or I struggle with these other issues. I don't want to. God, give me a heart of generosity. Help me to want to be a cheerful giver. That's why I would say generosity by itself is just doing, doing. And the gospel is Him doing. Him fixing, Him refining, Him purifying. To humble yourself 
and to just ask and say, I need you. It's good to be needy with God. Maybe not so much in other relationships. With God, it's really good to be needy because that makes much of him. So as the band comes, I want to just pray for you right now, guys. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for loving us. And so, for those of us, I said it at the beginning, for those of us who need to be encouraged tonight, I pray that we would. For those of us who need to be convicted, I pray that we would, and God, that you might, in a 2 Timothy 2.25 way, grant us a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That we would be humbled right now before you. Humbled. That we would be grieved over our sin, but grieved into repenting. The world experiences grief, but we want to grieve into repentance if we need to. I don't know where these people are at tonight, but I ask that you would help them. I ask that you would help them with the struggles that they face. I can't imagine to know what it is, but you do, Jesus. You know our hurts, our pains, our struggles. So I just ask that you would help us in here tonight. I ask that you would give us a greater love for you, a greater love for your word, and a greater love for your people, the church. Amen.